0: For many in the United States, mention of climate change conjures images of remote Pacific islands disappearing under rising sea levels, or of international communities forced to leave their homes in the face of exacerbated climate change disasters. While these realities are true, there is danger in having this narrow view as it positions climate change as something that happens to other people in distant corners of the globe, but not to us, not to the United States. In other words, this narrow view of climate change otherizes the issue. Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing addressing the United States climate crisis and climate displacement, a transition from otherization of climate change to a focus on domestic solutions. This is a student note written by Berkeley Law student Isabel Tahir published in Issue 2 of Volume 110 in April of 2022. Isabel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your note.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you and to share more about this piece.
0: So to begin with, can you summarize what it is you argue in this piece?
1: Yeah, so this note, this piece argues that associating climate change with people outside the United States creates An otherization of climate change that eventually evades the responsibility that we have to look internally and address the domestic climate impact that we are facing. And the importance of addressing the domestic climate impact internally is very important because the effects of climate change in the United States often disproportionately harm poor communities, rural and immigrant communities, as well as communities of color.
0: Thank you, Isabel. Um, and you touched on this a little bit in your previous answer, but why what, what was it that you wrote this piece? Um, and what do you hope it will accomplish?
1: I wrote this piece because I feel a great sense of responsibility. Uh, I feel a tremendous amount of um, both hope and despair in the current situation we face with climate change. And, you know, I have to admit that in addressing climate change and climate crisis, um, this topic can be very depressing at times and it can be like, oh, here we go again. You know, we're talking about this one more time. But I just I feel this sense of um ensuring that the topic remains central to our conversations and to our daily lives. And it's a, a reminder that we still have time to address this and that we still have time to repair a lot of the harm that we have caused. Um, and, you know, as depressing as it may seem, um, we cannot lose track of the imperative of the reality that we're facing. And I hope that, that the piece is a starting point for people um, to look internally and to begin to see how much climate change is present here.
0: Yeah, that's something I, I definitely took from your piece. I I, too, struggle with that how long we've been talking about this issue and how little has been done and trying to find hope. And and I appreciated your piece as a a call to action and also as offering some potential solutions. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the concept of authorization, um, what that means and and how it fits into the context of climate change?
1: Yeah, so the concept of authorization is rooted in a sociological casting of a group, differentiating us versus them. Um, It's almost like a polarizing of groups. And this casting is based on the distinction um that it operates primarily as a power structure um that focuses on things like race, gender, class, and other additional characteristics and drawing from the sociological roots of authorization and within the us versus them dichotomy uh the the note I use the concept of authorizing based on on this framework and on the aspect of differences. And in the context of climate change, us is the United States, and them is this distant place, these distant communities where climate change is currently happening. It's, it's almost the focus is on different experiences faced by by climate crisis victims um, globally, distant from this, from this place. So it's it's, it's in other words... It's happening there to them. It's not happening here to us. We otherize the issue.
0: Yeah, and your piece talks about kind of some of the perils of doing this, of of thinking of climate change as something that happens abroad, as, as something that doesn't happen here in the United States. And I'm wonder if you could you could tell us a little bit more about what those perils are.
1: Well, the distinction of us versus them is dangerous for me for two main reasons. First, in the context of global citizens, including climate refugees, the distinction exacerbates climate injustice by constructing um, them as barbarians, almost as threatening the sovereignty of civilized nations who are not facing climate change, when in reality we are facing climate change. And it also reinforces a racial distinction between us and them, citizens and foreigner and friend and enemy. And I, I quote a lot of this in my paper, and I talk more extensively about this danger. And then the second part of this is that when academic literature covers climate change in the United States, um, it, covers as, it covers the issue as if it's occurring abroad, and it perpetuates the idea that the United States and its residents are exempt from this global issue, when that's just not the case, Um, it advances an idea of American exceptionalism rooted in the belief that other countries have challenges and calamities, but we do not. Like, you know, there's poverty somewhere else, but not here um, to draw that kind of parallel. And when it comes to climate crisis, that's just very far from the truth. And it it creates, a, it influences a deflection of responsibility.
0: So your piece notes that while much of the academic literature and media portrayals in the U.S. focus on the international impacts of climate change, the climate crisis is taking place here as well. Could you paint us a picture of what that climate crisis looks like here in the United States?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best because, um, this, the note gives a regional overview of what climate change looks like now. And I'll just briefly give some examples. I mean, we're in California. Um, I don't know if you're a native of California or if, um, you are just here with me because of law school. But since 2017, an array of wildfires have drastically devastated entire cities like paradise, entire communities, entire neighborhoods. And the fires and their devastating impact are a combination of many things, including poor forest management, inefficient utility infrastructure, and climate change. And California, unfortunately, is not the only state facing wildfires. Uh, Regions like Oregon, Nevada, Arizona are also frequently confronting wildfires. And in Arizona, for example, 10 of the largest wildfires in the state's history have occurred in the last eight years. Um, and again, I'm not saying that climate change uh, produces wildfires, but climate change exacerbates uh, wildfires for sure. And climate crisis um, on the East Coast, for example, is starkly different from the way that we view it in California Um, In states like New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, uh, climate crisis is a mix of both hurricanes and extreme rainfall, and unlike the increase in wildfires, climate change has not necessarily produced more hurricanes, but the hurricanes that have emerged in the last few years are far more severe. Um, and in the South, I'm I'm just moving along the United States to give a, a more comprehensive picture. In the South, um, similar climate crisis events as those experienced by the East Coast, um, states like North Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, parts of Texas and Georgia face a high risk of hurricanes. A combination of extreme heat, water stress is also present in those southern states like Arkansas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and then the northern part of Alabama as well. Humidity and storms in places like New Orleans will profoundly impact communities. And I mean, New Orleans is a place that has already been greatly devastated. And water stress and shore supply will contribute to droughts experienced in places like Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. I can go on, but to answer your question, that's that's what we're looking at based on the research that I did and on, on some of the things that I noted in the article
0: yeah, I grew up in in Colorado actually before coming here to California for school. and I can definitely attest to those wildfires, but I think your piece does a wonderful job of showing how diverse the effects of climate change are here in the United States. And that certainly is, is one of the challenges with recognizing it as a threat and also addressing it. Um, and one of the other pieces your your uh, your your note talks about are is the fact that as effects of climate change ramp up, more and more people will be displaced and forced to relocate from their homes. Could you give us a sense of what that looks like here in the U.S.?
1: Yeah. So the displacement of people due to climate crisis is very narrowly understood in the U.S. and it's very narrowly covered. Hence the importance of, I think, why I wrote this piece. Um, And the focus on climate displacement remains very limited but I did, I was able to find a lot of really important information that touches on what the displacement currently is and on the projected displacement. So, for example, internal migration and planned relocation due to climate crisis disasters have already commenced. The indigenous Quinao and the Biloxi Chitimacha, Chatao peoples were some of the first who were forced to migrate. In particular, Alaska Native villages have been among the first communities to experience the acute stress of rising temperatures, and with some tribal communities' appeals for relocation assistance dating back to more than 15 years. So these this, um, this appeals for relocation have been ongoing for more than a decade. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, displacement became very visible and a population shift became just inevitable. Um, the displacement of New Orleans residents, particularly Black Americans, resulted in a shift across the South. And Houston, Texas, for example, received an estimated 250,000 refugees, more than anywhere else in the country. And approximately 150,000 of these climb migrants. I put that in quotations, um, remain in Houston one year later, and then the rest eventually resettled in other locations of Texas. Um, And many people didn't go back to New Orleans after that happened. And um, by the year 2050 um, and beyond, climate displacement in the United States will be even more visible um, the I read a New York Times article while doing this note that the United States uh, is a nation in the cusp of transformation, that across the United States, some 162 million people, that's nearly one in two, will most likely experience a decline in the quality of their environment and then uh, more heat and less water. This transformation means that by 2070, 93 million Americans could be faced with drastically severe conditions and will be forced to relocate and live in places entirely different from the ones they once lived in.
0: Yeah, and your your piece's discussion of the communities that are already having to relocate and the future relocations that will happen as a result of climate change highlights how when it comes to responding to this uh, crisis, the U.S. disaster relief and relocation policies are largely inadequate. Could you tell us a bit more about how these policies fail to address this growing challenge and particularly how they fail to provide meaningful support to disadvantaged communities?
1: Yeah, the issue, with, the issue with the United States is that a lot of the climate crisis and natural disaster support obviously comes after natural disasters have taken place and the existing support is often focused on disaster relief. Right. so after again after it has it has taken place um the problem it, with this is that it becomes a reactive approach instead of a proactive or like you know happening um before before it takes place and the lack of pre-planning guidelines and limits uh, mitigation efforts to climate change um exacerbate. Uh, the kind of support, or I I wouldn't say exacerbate, but um, limit, limit the kind of support that people get and exacerbates the kind of harm that they experience after the natural disasters have happened. In the United States, um, disaster relief and emergency assistance is governed by the Stafford Act, um, which gives FEMA the task to coordinate assistance of emergency relief. And FEMA's assistance is focused on supporting local disaster-centered communities that have been affected by natural disasters. The support comes in the form of rebuilding infrastructure for the most part and providing emergency housing, which is obviously very needed when people have lost their homes right after a natural disaster. And it's also focused on offering financial assistance. And while that may seem great, okay, infrastructure, we obviously need to rebuild. We obviously need to provide people with emergency housing right away. And we need to provide people with financial assistance. Um, The array of climate-induced events um, is just doesn't allow FEMA to partake in the kind of support the communities need across the board. And FEMA's focus on providing support to victims is also most notably focused on victims of flooding. Um, And the agency administers, the agency does take uh, part in a program, in a managed retreat program. And through this program, they work with local officials and they may request funding to buy out homes or entire neighborhoods that are uh, prone to hazardous or repetitive flooding. Um, And again, like these this So this is FEMA's kind of um, approach. That's one of them. And I'll talk about HUD and I'll talk about the other ones. But for example, just focusing on FEMA, um, the amount of funding that we would need uh, to ensure that people who have faced natural disasters and need infrastructure, housing and financial assistance, it's a lot it's a lot of money right and apart from the money the level of coordination among local county state and the federal government it's just it would create a a a a, pro- a process that would be really hard for people to eventually get the, get the support that they need in in a fast way um and then i'll move on to the hard the hard program um the support provided by hard is comprised of mortgage insurance program and a community grant program. And in the mortgage insurance program, HUD offers mortgage insurance to protect lenders against the risk of default or on mortgages that qualify disaster for qualified disaster victims. Um, for homes located in designated disaster areas, insurance mortgages may use the finance to purchase or reconstruct one family home that will be principal residence of the homeowner. And although these programs exist and provide some kind of support for disaster victims, these programs are focused on the financial assistance of people who have mortgages. Not everybody owns a home, as as you may know. The problem with this is that in many instances, communities affected by climate change are not homeowners. And so they may not benefit or they may not qualify from some of these programs. And the assistance to renters and non-homeowners, it's then not provided and this leaves thousands of people with no help or support so it's again um, it's very inadequate I mean I I would say that we're glad something is there but it's it's greatly inadequate Um, and then to support uh, to receive support via the small business uh, program that I had mentioned this is focused on businesses and private individuals and it comes in the form of loans so this the support is not direct financial support. Um and instead it offers low interest long-term loans to affected individuals who cannot qualify for credit elsewhere. And, I, and again this leaves a lot of communities just um not included. It leaves them um with no support and no, no, no lack of or or it leaves them with lack of of um benefiting from this kind of program. So that's that's currently what is offered in the US. And I do hope that we move as climate change and climate crisis progresses, that we move away from a reactive approach to a proactive approach to mitigate, at a mitigation approach.
0: So to address the lack of adequate policy addressing climate change-induced internal displacement, your paper calls for the implementation of the UN's Framework of Internally Displaced People. Can you tell us why implementation of the IDP framework is a good place to start and why it is so important to consider equity and environmental justice in addressing this problem?
1: Well, a lot of nations, a lot of countries like the United States are obviously sovereign nations, sovereign countries. Um, They are not necessarily regulated by international law. Um, But I do focus on the paper, on the note, um, that international law does have an influence in the way in which we can address climate change. So as the United States addresses climate displacement in the years to come, the United States internally displaced people framework can be used and modified as a new policy comes into place or as something um, gets, gets better implemented as a new better system is established. And the IDP framework gives clear guiding principles as to who would be considered an internally displaced person, both because of natural disasters and because of human-made disasters. Additionally, the displacement of people due to such disasters includes a really a diversity of um, displacement scenarios. I'll just mention some here that I think are really important. And I think what's important with this is that it allows us to classify climate crisis in the United States so the internally, in, internal displacement is due to, one, the sudden onset disasters such as flooding, the slow onset environmental degradation caused by rising sea level or droughts, the coastal inundations as experienced by small island states, the high-risk zones deemed too dangerous for human habitation because of environmental dangers, and the unrest seriously disturbing public order triggered by climate-related decrease in essential resources due to climate change. So the classification, the guiding principles that the internal displaced persons framework gives allows us to classify climate change in different categories. And we're going to need this level, of, again, we're going to this this level of classification, this level of coordination When we really begin to see the displacement of people across the United States, like who benefits from which program, under what category and such. And so I do think that even though international law does not, um, it's not the the rule of law in the United States, as we know, um, it does influence the way in which we can uh, establish programs that will hopefully allow us to better protect people and to better serve people. And to touch on the environmental justice um, uh, uh, prong of your question, a lot of people who are currently experiencing climate crisis, and I draw this parallel in the note, globally are often poor communities, and it's often the global south. What's interesting is that even though those communities are facing climate change, they have the least or maybe the least to do with the exacerbation of climate change. Similarly, in the United States, a lot of the communities who are or will face climate change are not necessarily uh, communities that um, have the resources or that exacerbated this problem, but they will face those consequences. And if we have the opportunity to establish a program that will support people in an equitable way, why not do it with the central focus being environmental justice at the core when we have the chance to do it? I would say when we have the chance to do it right from the the get-go. And um, I think that we would eliminate inefficiencies in the program from a policy perspective, inequities, for example, and definitely, hopefully the funding will be distributed in a more eloquent way for communities that will be impacted. So I do think that um, incorporating EJ um, will be central to these kind of programs and will hopefully allow us to to establish these programs in a better way.
0: Well, Isabel, thank you so much for bringing attention to this topic and for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. Um, I do want to make um, a point before we end this. I think we all have the opportunity to create change in the way that we want to see the planet be habitable for future generations. So whomever is listening, I really, um, I just come from a place of we we can all contribute to something greater than ourselves. And we have an incredible opportunity to change the way we're doing things. So I hope that you read at least the introduction to the piece or that you listen to the first, I don't know, 10 minutes of this podcast and that you engage in conversations that will hopefully help you see climate crisis happening here in your own backyard. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Isabel's note, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 2 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. Thank you, and we'll see you in the next episode.